The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of our Bible study is More Than Enough, and, and the reason, um, obviously we're going, to, we're going to look at Jesus feeding the 4,000, but the reason I think this is significant, it's, it's significant on a number of, uh, a number of levels. More than enough has to do with what God is doing in your life. You know, we we hear various things going on around the community and in the world and in the church community, and, and we get excited about it. But I just want you to pause for a moment and think tonight that the God of the universe is working in your heart and in your life right now. That the scriptures tell us that the work of the Holy Spirit is to change and transform you into the image of Jesus. That it's not what you're doing, although I think that's important, things like prayer and Bible study, asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the surrender and yielding to the Spirit. But at the end of the day, we would all say that the work that's taking place in us is a work of God. It's a work of Jesus changing and transforming us. We're going to look at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. The miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 marks, it marks the conclusion of Jesus' ministering outside of Israel. His outreach to the Gentile was months, months, not days. It was an extended period of time. We've talked about that from the, the, the healing of the Syrophoenician's daughter to last, last week when we talked about the man who, who, who was deaf and had the speech impediment. This, this represents a good amount of time. And I want you to think about it this way. Jesus brought the kingdom of heart deep into the heart of an area to a region called the Decapolis. I want you to think of 10 cities saturated by Greek culture. The menu when the disciples went to eat there was purely unclean food. The language was Greek, not Hebrew. In the worship, the worship was idolatry. They were immersed. They were saturated. But the the disciples, Jesus led the disciples outside of their comfort zone so that they could, with their very eyes, watch the gospel take place in their midst. Two things on this. First is that God loves the Gentiles. God certainly loves the Jews. We know that well here at Maranatha Chapel. But God loves the Gentile. God loves the outsider, the outcast. As a matter of fact, associated with uh, more than enough, the idea that God is working in our lives, God loves you even when you don't feel as though or sense as though that he's working in your life. Secondly, Jesus is planting a seed in the hearts of the disciples that the gospel must go to the nations. The gospel must go to the nations, and God's plan is that that the nations would receive the gospel through his church, through his followers. In the future, these disciples would not be surprised when they heard Jesus say in Matthew chapter 28, this is post-resurrection. I'm going to read it to you. Where it says in verse 16, now the 11 disciples, remember Judas is no longer with them, and they went to Galilee. For the majority of the disciples, they're going home. They're returning home. And they went to the mountain, and we're not told what the mountain was, but to which Jesus had directed them or told them to go there. Verse 17 says, 
And when they saw him, they worshiped him. They worshiped Jesus. But listen to this, but some doubted. Some had that difficulty of allowing themselves to enter into worship because they weren't quite sure what was going on. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because this is true, listen to what he tells them. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And listen to these words. By virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit is here now in you, and I will be with you until the end of the age. I will be with you. You will not go alone. It will not be in your own power, your own gifting, your own ability, but I will go with you. In the same way, disciples, that I've been with you for three years, I will continue to be with you, and I will never leave the church. I will always be with the church while she's on mission. History tells us, I want you to think about this. History tells us that when revival comes to the church, that the church goes to the nations. That when the church experiences spiritual awakening, something happens to the church that causes them to look to the horizon. Something shakes the church by even knowing that there are people out there who don't know about Jesus. And this is what will mark a revival. From an article written by Nathan A. Finn, the article is is titled The Hundred Year Prayer Meeting. Let me read this paragraph to you. Beginning in 1732, dozens, dozens of Moravian missionaries took the nearly unprecedented step of leaving Europe to spread the gospel to other lands. Early mission fields included the West Indies. This is interesting because as I was reading this article, one of the things it said of the Moravians is that a number of them sold themselves into slavery so that they might take the gospel to slaves. I'll repeat myself, early mission fields included the West Indies, Greenland, Turkey, West Africa, South America, and the English colonies of Georgia and Pennsylvania. In the latter two fields, the Moravians evangelized Native Americans. Count von Zinzendorf, who was the the leader of the Moravians, actually himself became a missionary to Pennsylvania, where he founded the city of Bethlehem in 1741. By 1791, obviously a number of years later, around 300 Moravian missionaries had been sent out from Hernhut. That was the community in Germany where they lived. That number was equivalent in size to the total number of Moravians uh, when the -the round-the-clock prayer meeting, that's the 100-year prayer meeting that went on for 100 years nonstop around the clock, first began in in 1727. The Moravian mission's awakening, though little known by Christians today, predated the so-called modern missions movement by two generations. He concludes this portion of his article by saying, prayer causes us to want to make sure that the gospel goes out to those who have not heard. So tonight, as we consider the feeding of the 4,000, I want you to consider this story as an expression of God pursuing those who are far off. 
And that when revival comes, when prayer movement comes to the church, the church's heart is altered, is changed to leave and to go, to leave and to go. This is why the gospel writers tell us that not only uh, were there 5,000 Jews that were fed near Bethsaida in Galilee, that is in the Jewish country, they also want us to know that Jesus had 4,000 Gentiles of the Decapolis. Let's go ahead and begin our study. On the screen, you're going to see a, 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 a sentence or a saying, and that is, Jesus came to save the lost. Because this is true, we are to go and tell the lost about Jesus. Christ's mission continues through the church. Christ's mission continues through you and through me. And obviously, it wasn't even planned through high school students who spend their spring break, who will raise money, do fundraisers, and go to a country called Brazil. So a number of years ago, I was working at the nuclear plant. Some of you have heard my story before. I was working from 5 p.m. to 12.30 at night. It was back in the days where we had pagers, and so what would basically would happen is, uh, is I would be out on the plant. My pager would, would notify me. I'd find in the plant, I would find a phone, call the main office, and they would tell me, you know, Danny, we need you to go over here, grab some guys, do this. And I was walking to a phone one time, my pager had gone off, and I heard two men. I didn't look at them. I heard two men. One said to the other, what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And I just kept walking. I didn't slow down. I didn't know that was scripture. I wasn't a believer. But my heart knew that I was lost. Within a relatively short period of time, because that verse found that seed, as Jesus describes in the parable of the sower and the sower in the soils, that seed, the word of God, found its way into my heart, and I became a Christian at the age of 22 years of age, 1978. Now listen to this. That one man who was sharing with the other, he likely went home that night and thought absolutely nothing happened as he shared uh, the gospel with a coworker. He thought nothing happened, but little did he know that something did happen. And I don't know how you look at ministry and I don't know how you look at spiritual things, but I believe that my life is the result of his faithfulness of taking the gospel to the nations, to his friends, to his community, to a coworker. And I believe that the totality of my life in ministry will be credited to him because of his faithfulness, and he doesn't even know it, but he will know it one day when he stands before Jesus and when he's rewarded for being faithful in sharing the gospel with the lost. Let's go ahead and read Jesus feeds the 4,000, verses 1 through 10. He fed the 4,000. Our first point is because he loved them. Jesus feeds the 4,000 because he loves them. Let me read to you from verses 1 through 3. In those days when, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have now been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint along the way. And some of them have come from very far away. I want you to see Jesus here. 
He has compassion on the multitudes. He has compassion, as we've already established, upon the Gentiles. Jesus' time in the Decapolis is also recorded in Matthew 15. We referenced this last week. I'm going to reference it again. Verse 30, listen to the summary of that time. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid him down at his feet, and he healed them. And he healed them. I want you to see your God here. He opens the door wide to any who will come to him. He opens the door wide to you tonight. Whatever you're going through, those of you joining us online, whatever you're going through, he opens the door wide to minister to you, to meet with you. Resulting in, again, Matthew 15, this time verse 31, so the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And this is the result. And they glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. Jesus cared for the people in such a way that the people ascribed glory and praise, even reverence to the God of the Jews. This is the background for Mark's brief, verse 1, when he says, in those days. This tells us what's going on, what's happening, and it's significant. It speaks to us. So then for three days, Jesus teaches the people, heals their diseases, delivers them from demons, which is why they either don't eat, they didn't have enough food, or they've exhausted their resources. Look at the Lord's response again, verse 2. He says, I have compassion on them. Fact of the matter is, we all have Gentiles in our lives. We, we all have people that we see as being far away from God, far away from the church, far away from the truth. By the way they live and, and by what they purport to believe. And Jesus says, I have compassion on them. I love them. Notice with me that Jesus meets both the spiritual. His desire is to meet the spiritual and the physical need. He, he doesn't separate them. In the, last, in the last century, there was a distinction in the church when some churches said, we need to have a social aspect to our ministry. And another part of the church said, that's important, but we need to have primarily a spiritual emphasis on our ministries. And there was literally a separation, kind of a parting of the ways. Our scripture tells us that Jesus fed them and ministered to them spiritually. He did both. I think that sometimes when you meet a practical need, it provides a platform for the gospel. But we would never want to meet the physical need and never address the spiritual need. This reminds us that we are to share the gospel and we are to care for the poor. In Proverbs 19, 17, Solomon tells us, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, 
Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will repay him for his deed. It doesn't take much study of the Old Testament scripture to see that God wanted Israel to care for the orphan, for the widow, and the stranger, let me use another word, the alien in the land. I oftentimes scratch my little bald head over this. Why would, he, why would God want these people cared for? And one of the reasons, not exclusively the only reason, was that they didn't have land to provide for themselves the orphan or the fatherless. The widow was vulnerable. These were vulnerable groups of people who could easily be taken advantage of, and God says, I want you to include them. One of my favorite stories, one of the books in the Old Testament is the book of Ruth. And we have the story, one of the principles of that story is that Ruth went out to the fields around Bethlehem to glean, to collect what was left behind And the reason there was something left behind was because God in his law instructed Israel to leave the corners of the field, to not shake the olive olive trees more than once, to not go through the vineyard more than once. Why? So that those who were poor could come and receive the blessing of the harvest to themselves. The people here were in a weakened condition. Verse 3 says, and this is Jesus' words, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint along the way. Again, we see Jesus is motivated to take care of these people because he loved them. Again, these are the outcasts, the Gentiles, the outsiders. God uses us to feed the poor, but only God saves them. Only God saves. On the screen, you'll see a quote by John Piper, one of two quotes by Brother Piper, where he says, if anybody is rescued, if anybody is redeemed, if anybody is saved, it is done so by God. The interesting thing to me is that you, God desires to use you through your message, through your testimony, through your generosity. On the screen, you'll see that Jesus feeds the 4,000 because he was preparing the disciples, verses 4 and 5. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed, how can we feed, how can anyone feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And then Jesus asked them, how many loaves, obviously of bread, do you have? And they responded by saying, we have seven Jesus' love and concern is preparation for the disciples' future ministry. I think that's primary, but secondarily, he wants us to understand God's heart here. He wants us, like the Moravians, he wants us to understand that God sees those who are on the outside, and he wants us to open these doors and to welcome them in. He wants us to open the doors of our homes, open the doors of our church to welcome them in. He wants us, he wants us to care for them. The disciples knew full well that Jesus could feed this crowd. They had seen that before. Their question is rooted in the fact that they are once again in a desolate or deserted place. They're in a wilderness. 
Just like us, they're learning about God's love for people who are very different than us, people who live in spiritual darkness. Let me read to you a passage from the New Testament where Paul says something very interesting about people who are in spiritual darkness. People, people who do not have truth in their lives. Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God small g of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light or the truth of the gospel. There's a number of ways to, to see the gospel. That is to read the gospel. That is to hear the gospel preached and taught and explained. And it's also seen in our actions. It's seen in our love. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds, the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Jesus is central to the gospel. He is central to our message. He is central to our worship. He is central to us being here tonight. Again, those of you who are joining us online, Jesus is central. And goes on to say, Jesus who is the image of God. I remember being in a classroom in... Um, Bolivia, and Pastor Trevor O'Keefe and I, we were brought into a classroom, right? We were brought into a classroom, and Pastor Trevor was explaining to these children, these Bolivian children, about who Jesus was, and he took out a quarter, and he handed that quarter to one of the little kids. They were happy to get it. He informed them that he was going to get it back again, but they were at least happy to hold on to it for a couple of minutes. And then he took another quarter, and he held it up, and he held it in his hand, and he asked the child through an interpreter to describe what the quarter looked like. The little child began to describe the images on the quarter and the date on the quarter. And then, and then Trevor goes, come on, you got to give it back now. And so he gives it back and he goes, you saw, you saw in that coin the image of what I had in my hand. You saw what was tangible to you, to what was hidden from you because you held it in your hand. Jesus is the image of God. He is the physical manifestation of God. My friends, there is salvation in no other person but Jesus. As Trevor told the child, he goes, you can't see God, but you know what God is like when you see Jesus. And as we consider our story here tonight and what we're giving our life to, we follow Jesus' example. Let me read to you a couple more verses from 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We are not central to the gospel or salvation. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ or Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine in darkness, creation, creation, in the same way God spoke light into existence in Genesis chapter 1. Has, light has now shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Our message is Jesus. The power unto salvation is not in clever preaching or teaching or celebrity or personality. The power of salvation is to trust in Jesus Christ, and that truth will bring light into your soul. That truth will deliver you from the power of darkness. That truth will deliver you from spiritual darkness. That truth will open your eyes and open your ears and open your heart. On the screen, you'll see another. This is my second quote by John Piper. I'm just tripping out on John this week. He says, when we finish reading about a miracle, we ought to pause and say, Jesus, show me what this is saying about you. Show me what this miracle is saying about you because you are the only one who's important. In verse 5, Jesus invites the disciples into the miracle when he asks, how many loaves do you have? I always think about these big loaves of bread. You know, you, you, you go to, the, uh, like to a Panera and you look behind the, the shelf and they have all these masks. Not so. That's not what he's talking about here. Sorry. I want you to think about a grainy biscuit. A biscuit that, that has all these seeds in it. That when you go to, to, to break it, to consume it, that it shatters in your hands. Crumbs everywhere. You know, when, when we get hungry, we eat. Actually, I don't know if you noticed anything about the young men that were just up here, but food was central to their ministry in Brazil. Food was central. It's like, we, 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 you know, we ate this, and then we ate that, because food is so important. When we get hungry, we eat. I think the great challenge for man today is how he nourishes his soul. I, I think, and I'm not in any way attempting to be critical, but, but only reflective when I say, is your soul nourished? Is your soul refreshed, strengthened? Pursuing pleasure leaves us wanting more. Only pursuing Jesus quenches the thirst of the soul. Remember Psalm 23. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He renews. He revives. He refreshes my soul. Nurture Nurture your soul. Don't neglect the inner man. In John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. I want you to think about a couple of things here. In the nourishing of our soul, we must notch out time for silence. I've heard it said, we must find a way to kill the noise, the thoughts that never stop, the anxiety, the worry, the concern, like the waves of the sea pounding against our soul. We need to learn to disconnect from anything that needs to be charged. 
serves us greatly, right? All the digital and technology helps us, but it also can be a barrage of noise that never stops to nourish our soul, notch out time for silence. Secondly, unload on God. Tell him of your great joys and of your great hurts. He invites you to do this. God invites you into his presence to unload on him, to tell him what you're going through. Thirdly, talk with somebody who loves Jesus. Talk with somebody whose superpower is listening to you because they love you. They're not going to try and fix you. They're going to listen to you. They're going to hear you. They're not formulating a response. They love and respect you enough to hear what you're saying. That will nourish. That will fill your soul. Back to Mark's gospel here, where we see that Gentiles outside of the Abrahamic covenant were considered unclean, and yet Jesus eats with them. Jesus eats with them. He sits down and he eats with them. He feeds them. He meets their physical need. He meets their spiritual need. And he gives himself to them, my friends. He gives himself to you tonight. He is with you. His love for the Gentiles and his care for the disciples are the result of feeding the 4,000. One more section of scripture will be done. Jesus feeds the 4,000 because, verses 6 through 10, he alone satisfies our hunger. And he directed the crowd to sit down. This is Jesus organizing the group that was there. But he tells them to sit down on the ground. This is what he did with the 5,000. As a matter of fact, Mark tells us, probably through Peter's perspective, that the 5,000 sat down on green grass. This tells us that we're some, so many months later because it says here that they sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, that is he prayed a prayer of thanks for his meal, he broke them, shattered them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He not only, he includes the disciples in the ministry. Listen, he includes you. He includes me in his ministry. This is his design. I oftentimes have this sense, and and, and I don't know what people do, People do with it. I know I had a struggle when I was young and about getting into the, into the ministry, but, but this is ministry, him using you, him using you, wanting to use you, empowering you to use you. And verse 7 tells us they also had a few fish, right? They're very close to the Sea of Galilee. And having blessed them as well, he said to them, these... Uh, he said that these should also be set before them, so the fish and the, and the bread. And they ate and were satisfied. That is filled. They were like full. And they, the disciples, took up the broken pieces left over and seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and they went to the district of Dalmanutha. Just a couple more thoughts on this. Jesus initiates the scene that's before us. The crowd doesn't come to him and say, we're hungry. A shepherd observes his people 
And he saw that their need was for physical sustenance, so he feeds them. And then verse 6, he organizes them into groups to expedite feeding them. Again, we see that he directed or instructed the crowd to sit on the ground. And then I, I read it twice. Jesus blesses or gives thanks for provision. This is what we do, right? Whether it's a, like a Thanksgiving or an Easter meal, we sit down and we pray. Or a protein bar. Because we recognize that this provision comes from God and we're thankful. Gratitude for what we have is a form of worship. Then Jesus snaps or breaks the biscuit And he does so again and again and again. He he takes a biscuit from the disciples and he begins to break it with his hands and he gives to this disciple and he breaks and he breaks and he gives to this disciple. And the disciples go out and distribute the food and they come back and he breaks it again and again and he tears the fish again and again. And the disciples come and go, come and go, come and go. He is central to what's taking place here. He is central to your life. If you come to him, he will fill you and he will send you. He will fill you and he will send you. He will fill you and he will send you. And he breaks and he breaks and he breaks and he breaks. And the disciples say, Lord, we don't need any more. I want you to think about this. The bread that he broke, the fish that he broke, the bread was not planted in a field. It was, not, it was not watered by the rain. It was not harvested. It was not threshed. It was not crushed. It, it, nobody took flour and, and, and mixed it with oil and, and baked it. It came from Jesus. It's not like, unlike the water uh, at the wedding of Cana, where Jesus instru- instructs the servants, just, just go collect some water and, and bring it here. And as they collected, it was transformed into high-quality wine. And when you come to Jesus in prayer, When you come to him in confession, when you come to him in song and in worship or in Bible study, or you come to him and you purely sit to him in silence, he takes your heart and he places it into his hands and he changes it. Because he's more than enough. Christianity that says you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do this and you need to do that and you don't do this and you don't do that and you don't do that doesn't know that we come to a Savior who changes our heart and the things he wants us to do we will naturally do and the things that he doesn't want us to do will fall by the wayside like leaves off a tree in the fall. And he is changing you right now. He's transforming you. And the work that he's accomplishing in you right now, my friend, will last for all of eternity. It will last for all of eternity because it is a work of the Spirit. It is a work of God. It's a miracle. It is miraculous. It is not unlike the creation of this world. It's the transformation of the human heart. And my friend, that is Christianity. 
In Mark chapter 6, verse 42 and 43, of the feeding of the 5,000, it says that they ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets of broken pieces of bread and of fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, and they were satisfied. My friends, tonight, as you leave here, Jesus will leave you satisfied. Every relationship you have with any other individual will not give you lasting satisfaction. Any other experience you have, wonderful experiences you have in this world, will not leave you satisfied. You will be like the woman at the well coming back for more water day by day. More water, more water, more water. But Jesus told her, and I'll close with this, but the water I have to give, you will never thirst again. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.